Glen One Easter morn to a city fair rode I Their armed lines of marching men in squadrons passed me by No fife did hum No battle drum did sound its loud tattoo But the Angelus bells Oh, the liffy swells rang out in the foggy dew. Right proudly high in Dublin town, they hung out the flag of war. It was better to die neath an Irish sky than at Sulva or Sudel Bar. And through the plains of royal Meath, strong men came hurrying through. As Britannia's Huns, with their long-range guns, sailed in through the foggy dew. It was England bade our wild geese go, that small nations might be free and their lonely graves are by Sulva's waves or the fringe of the great North Sea well had they died by Pierce's side or fought with Catalbro then their names we would keep where the Fenians sleep Neath the shroud of the foggy dew. Well, the bravest fell, and the requiem bell rang mournfully and clear. For those who died that Easter tide in the springtime of the year. And the world did gaze in deep amaze at those fearless men, but few, who bore the fight that freedom's light might shine through the foggy dew. Back through the glen, I rode again, and my heart with grief was sore for I parted then with valiant men who I never shall see no more but to and fro in my dreams I go and I kneel and pray for you for tyranny fled Oh, glorious dead, when you fell in the foggy
All right, welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. Open it up again with me doing a little ditty on the guitar. And once again, a song which I believe is a part of the intellectual commons of the human race by this point. And uh, no copyright infringement involved. I'm sure many of you recognize that as The Foggy Dew, written by... um, Irish patriot priest by the name of Charles O'Neill in the wake of the 1916 Easter Rebellion, performing it this week for a couple of reasons. One, most obviously because it's the anniversary. We have just passed the uh, 103rd anniversary of the 1916 Easter Rebellion in Dublin, which marked the beginning of the uh, struggle for Irish independence, one of the first great revolutions and national liberation struggles of the 20th century. And I really love that song. That's the kind of song that really, really gets to me, both um, extremely heartfelt and passionate and also extremely didactic with lots of very specific historical references to not only the Easter Rebellion, but uh, particular battles of World War I and, uh, you know, greater global issues of the day, self-determination for small nations, etc. I could do a whole historical exegesis just on the lyrics to that song, but I'll resist the temptation to do so. I'm just going to point out uh, that, uh, you know, it's obviously nationalist propaganda. (laughs) And, uh, you know, some latter versions have tried to clean it up a little bit. For instance, changing the reference to Britannia's Huns with their long-range guns, as it was rendered by the Chieftains in their version of it, true to the original, written by Charles O'Neill in the aftermath of the 1916 Easter Rebellion, some of the latter versions have changed that to the more genteel Britannia's sons with their long-range guns. And this is uh, getting to the other reason why I'm playing this song today and how it relates to what we're going to be discussing on this podcast of April 28th, 2019, Which is, you know, I mean, there's an obvious contradiction here that my anarchist ass is uh, getting off on, you know, performing and getting off on this um, nationalist anthem, which it clearly is. And this relates to the whole question of nationalism and the various contradictory ways that those of us on the left who consider ourselves to be anarchists have related to the whole question of nationalism over the years. Now, Generally, anarchists are perceived as being opposed to nationalism and just rejecting it wholesale. The way this actually plays itself out in real life is a little bit more complicated. Now, I recognize that all nationalism is subject to its abuses, but nor do I see all nationalism as alike, particularly in the case of Ireland way back in 1916. The nationalism of a national liberation struggle of a small nation trying to free itself from an empire is not the same as the nationalism of an empire. So certainly in 1916 and in the Irish Civil War that followed, I would have been on the side of the Republicans and the revolutionaries. But with all due respect to Charles O'Neill, I also would have opposed... For instance, the imposition of a uh, culturally conservative Catholic hegemony over an independent Ireland, 
which relates, <laughs> to quote another song, to the line from John Lennon, Sunday, Bloody Sunday, Ireland for the Irish, not for London or for Rome. And certainly the accommodations that were made between the Irish revolutionaries and German imperialism, because it happened to be opposing British imperialism, while understandable and arguably inevitable, was also subject to criticism, shall we say. And similarly, lots of figures over the course of the past hundred years and change that um, anarchists have rallied around, and figures which were at least influenced by anarchism, even if they did not explicitly identify as anarchists, have also simultaneously embraced nationalism to one degree or another. Going way back to 1916, once again, just as uh, the Easter Rebellion broke out in Ireland, the Mexican Revolution was going on, and the, uh, the greatest and most inspiring figure of the Mexican Revolution, particularly for us anarchists, was Emiliano Zapata, the Caudillo of the South, who took up arms to win land for the campesinos and local autonomy and self-governance for the peasants and indigenous peoples of the Mexican South, influenced by anarchism, but also very much a Mexican nationalist and asserting the sovereignty and the dignity of Mexico in the face of foreign imperialism, particularly the Colossus of the North, Los Estados Unidos. Similarly, jumping forward um, a decade and change to the 1930s, Augusto Cesar Sandino, in his um, insurgency against the U.S. Marines who were occupying Nicaragua, very much influenced by anarchism and that same vision of local self-governing peasant communities with their lands recovered from the usurping landlord and oligarchic class, but also very much a Nicaraguan nationalist. So I find that, uh, you know, we're facing similar contradictions in the contemporary world situation, and I find myself having to march under national flags, some national flags, and others which I reject entirely. First and foremost, obviously, old glory. <laughs> I learned to despise that flag very, very early in my life. But certainly in, um, you know, some of the uh, immigrants' rights mobilizations, which we've seen here in New York City in recent years, you know, I've marched alongside the Mexican flag. And some people in these rallies have even waved old glory because to them, it means something else. You know, it means that they, uh, you know, their aspirations to be equal citizens in the United States and to have a dignified place in this society. That's not what it means to me. And that's not what it means to many around the world who want to burn old glory. Similarly, in the mobilizations which have taken place here in New York City in recent years for the freedom of the Tibetan people, I have found myself marching under the national flag of Tibet, a country which does not have its independence but does consider itself to be a distinct nation and has its own flag and its own exiled government in Dharmasala, India. So I've marched under the Tibetan flag. I would not march under the flag of the People's Republic of China today, although arguably in 1949, maybe that was a flag that was worth rallying around. So it's a rather complicated question, the whole question of nationalism. And the reason it's uh, weighing on my mind at the moment 
is that this Wednesday is going to be May Day. And I'm going to be joining a contingent at the May Day March here in New York City, meeting up at Columbus Circle, made up of supporters of the Syrian Revolution. My fellow members of the uh, group Syria Solidarity New York City. And we indeed are going to be marching under the free Syrian flag. People who've been following Syria closely will know that there was the original flag of an independent Syria, the flag of the independence movement under the uh, French mandate, and the flag of independent Syria after it achieved its independence in 1961. And that flag was divided into three stripes, a green at the top, white in the middle, black at the bottom, and the, the white field in the middle had three red stars. Then in 1971, the Assad dynasty, which still rules the country today, came to power with the coup d'etat that brought Hafez Assad to power, the father of the incumbent dictator, Bashar Assad, and uh, they changed the flag. Now it's um, the new flag, the flag of the, basically of the Assad regime, is a, uh, a red, white, and black, as opposed to green, white, and black fields, with two green stars in the middle, as opposed to three red stars. And the original flag of independent Syria from 1960 to 1971 has been revived by the Syrian revolution, by the Syrian revolutionaries and the, and the rebels who are opposing Bashar Assad, who they look at as an usurper. And they see themselves as having to essentially to fight for Syria's independence all over again, and especially now that Assad has brought in foreign powers to back him up and the country is de facto occupied by Russia and Iran. So we're going to be marching under the free Syrian flag, the one with the three red stars. And, uh, you know, I've taken the decision to march under this flag, despite the fact that I'm an anarchist. And the anarchist flag, as we all know, is just a black field with no insignia on it at all. Although sometimes, you know, they'll add the, uh, the red circle A anarchist insignia but basically a black flag, meaning the negation of nationalism. But the thing is, of course, <laughs> I mean, this is kind of a dirty little secret, but it's like very, very, very obvious, okay, <laughs> that um, anarchists attach to that black flag, which ostensibly symbolizes the negation of nationalism, feelings which are very, very much akin to nationalistic feelings. <laughs> they can have the exact same sense of, um, of, of loyalty and, uh, and, you know, passionate commitment bordering on or sometimes crossing the border into dogmatism that nationalists attach to national flags. I mean, this is just true, right? I mean, there's just no getting around it. And this was a point which was made very eloquently by George Orwell in his 1945 essay, Notes on Nationalism, by which he uh, made clear that he meant something larger than mere commitment to a nation and a flag, but a larger intellectual malady. I'm going to read some passages from Orwell's essay. From Notes on Nationalism, 1945, George Orwell. By nationalism, 
I mean, first of all, the habit of assuming that human beings can be classified like insects and whole blocks of millions or tens of billions of people can be confidently labeled good or bad. But secondly, and this is much more important, I mean the habit of identifying one's self with a single nation or other unit, placing it beyond good and evil and recognizing no other duty than that of advancing its interests. The abiding purpose of every nationalist is to secure more power and prestige, not for himself, but for the nation or other unit in which he has chosen to sink his own individuality. So long it is applied merely to the more notorious and identifiable nationalist movements in Germany, Japan, and other countries, all this is obvious enough. Confronted with a phenomenon like Nazism, which we can observe from the outside, nearly all of us would say much the same things about it. But here I must repeat what I said above, that I am only using the word nationalism for lack of a better. Nationalism, in the extended sense in which I am using the word, includes such movements and tendencies as communism, political Catholicism, which he meant in its most extreme form, the um, uh, uh, clerical fascism of Francisco Franco and Antipavlich, Zionism, and remember he wrote this in 1945 before the establishment of the State of Israel. So today you could argue that Zionism is a form of nationalism. In 1945, it wasn't exactly. Antisemitism, Trotskyism, and pacifism. It does not necessarily mean loyalty to a government or a country, still less to one's own country. And it's not even strictly necessary that the units in which it deals should actually exist. To name a few obvious examples, Jewry, Islam, Christendom, the proletariat, and the white race are all of them objects of passionate nationalistic feeling. But their existence can be seriously questioned, and there is no definition of any one of them that would be universally accepted. Well, there are some controversial words there. (laughs) Which, uh, you know, and it's very interesting that, you know, Jews, Muslims, Christians, communists, and white nationalists would all reject what Orwell just said and would say, how dare you, how dare you say that my group does not exist? And yet all of them would also deny that some people who claim to be a part of that group exist. And I can just tell you this, as an ethnic Jew, I am constantly being told that I'm not, quote-unquote, really a Jew. And I'm getting this from, uh, ironically, both from strict Orthodox Jews who maintain that because, you know, um, I have a shiksa mom <laughs> and I'm not halakhically Jewish and I'm not a practicing Jew and I'm not a believer, I'm not a religious Jew, this means that I'm not really a Jew. And I also get it from the anti-Semites who are basically saying, oh, you're not really a Jew. If, you're not, if you don't practice the religion, you're not really a Jew. Just, you know, get over it and assimilate. And I say to hell with both of that. Yeah, I'm a Jew. Deal with it. And similarly, you know, the uh, Orthodox Sunnis deny that the Shiites are actually Muslims, and the Orthodox Shiites deny that the Sunnis are actually Muslims, and the same can be said, you know, of the um, adherence of political Catholicism towards the Protestants, and the most dogmatic and reactionary Protestants towards the Catholics, etc., etc., etc. Okay, getting back to the essay here, Orwell goes on to um, list several traits which he identifies as pathologies 
which are inherent to nationalism in the particular sense in which he is using the word. And uh, among them, he lists indifference to reality. All nationalists have the power of not seeing resemblances between similar sets of facts. A British Tory will defend self-determination in Europe and oppose it in India with no feeling of inconsistency. Actions are held to be good or bad, not on their own merits, but according to who does them. And there is almost no kind of outrage. Torture, the use of hostages, forced labor, mass deportations, imprisonment without trial, forgery, assassination, the bombing of civilians, which does not change its moral color when it is committed by our side. The Liberal News Chronicle newspaper published as an example of shocking barbarity, photographs of Russians hanged by the Germans, and then a year or two later, published with warm approval, almost exactly similar photos of Germans hanged by the Russians. It is the same with historical events. History is thought of largely in nationalist terms, and such things as the Inquisition, the tortures of the Star Chamber, the exploits of the English buccaneers, Sir Francis Drake, for instance, who was given to sinking Spanish prisoners alive, the reign of terror, etc., he names a few more, (laughs) become morally neutral or even meritorious when it is felt that they were done in the right cause. If one looks back over the past quarter of a century, one finds that there was hardly a single year when atrocity stories were not being reported from some part of the world, And yet, in not one single case were these atrocities in Spain, Russia, China, Hungary, Mexico, Amristar, Smyrna, believed in and disapproved of by the English intelligentsia as a whole. Whether deeds were reprehensible or indeed whether they happened was always decided according to political predilection. The nationalist not only does not disapprove of atrocities committed by his own side, but he has a remarkable capacity for not even hearing about them. For quite six years, the English admirers of Hitler contrived not to learn of the existence of Dachau and Buchenwald. And those who are loudest in denouncing the German concentration camps are often quite unaware, or only very dimly aware, that there are also concentration camps in Russia. Huge events like the Ukraine famine of 1933, involving the deaths of millions of people, have actually escaped the attention of the majority of English Russophiles. Many English people have heard almost nothing about the extermination of German and Polish Jews during the present war. Their own anti-Semitism has caused this vast crime to bounce off their consciousness. In nationalist thought, there are facts which are both true and untrue, known and unknown. A known fact may be so unbearable that it is habitually pushed aside and not allowed to enter into logical processes. End quote. Some important and very difficult words from George Orwell, writing way back in 1945, which unfortunately have a very great deal to do with public perceptions of the war in Syria today. On the left, on the right, and on the center, equally. But I'm here specifically going to speak about the left Because, uh, like Orwell, I am of the left while simultaneously being a critic of it. And it's my home. And first of all, you've got to make sure that your own house is in order. And boy, 
is the contemporary Americans left house out of order when it comes to the question of Syria and a great many other related questions. Now, unfortunately, I have to call this as I see it. The consensus position of the American left today is pro-fascist on the question of Syria. And again, on a great deal of other questions, unfortunately. And this is not something which I am saying lightly. I am not one of these people who throws the word fascism around like a manhole cover and just uses it as a baseball bat, to mix metaphors, to beat up on my political enemies. I'm using the word with a rigorous and exacting respect for its definition. The regime of Bashar Assad is a fascist regime, a leader-worshipping one-man autocracy of the far right in its ideological roots explicitly inspired by Nazi Germany, if you go back to the beginnings of Assad's Ba'ath Party, and a regime which has, over the course of the war in Syria over the past eight years, escalated to genocide against perceived sectarian enemies and disloyal elements of the populace. And the consensus position of the American left is now one in support of this regime. And I do not want to hear the requisite and knee-jerk disavowal that, oh no, we don't support the regime, we just oppose U.S. intervention in Syria, because that is quite simply a lie. When you parrot regime propaganda, when you depict the Syrian opposition as monolithically jihadist, when you cast doubt on Bashar Assad being behind the serial chemical attacks that we've seen in Syria, when you portray genuinely heroic civil resistance groups like the White Helmets, and to tell you the truth, the White Helmets aren't even political. They're not even a civil resistance group. There is, in fact, a heroic civil resistance in Syria, but the White Helmets are really just a civil defense group. When you portray them as an arm of al-Qaeda, you are echoing Bashar Assad propaganda. And you are implicitly justifying attacks on civilians, the bombing of civilian populations, and chemical attacks on civilian populations. This is objectively support of the Assad regime. And one of the worst offenders, who is something of a golden boy of the American left at the moment, who has engaged in all of the propaganda abuses, which I have just outlined, is Max Blumenthal, who is currently promoting his new book, The Management of Savagery. But I would go further. He is not merely objectively on the side of the Assad dictatorship. He is subjectively on the side of the Assad dictatorship. He recently wrote, and I quote, ever since I came out in 2016, forcefully against regime change in Syria, I have been targeted by a small collection of neoconservative and centrist operatives, end quote, meaning the people who have protested at his uh, book promotion events, as I have. Now, needless to say, I am not a neoconservative and I am not a centrist. So that's a calumny right there. But if you are against regime change in Syria, you support the regime in Syria. And it is one of the worst tragedies of the whole experience of the Iraq war and the grave damage to political discourse, which was done by the damn neoconservatives, that the term regime change has now become synonymous with foreign imperialist meddling in the Middle East. 
Now, the neoconservatives are out of power, okay? They've been out of power at least since Obama was elected. And they had already been humbled even before that, when the Iraq war turned into an utter disaster. But because Bush and the neocons adapted the term regime change and applied it to Iraq, which was an arbitrary and unprovoked imperialist invasion, there is still the um, unwarranted stigma which attaches to the word regime change. Now, if you look at it merely objectively, regime change is something which not only something that we should all support under every dictatorial regime on the planet, of which there are many, regardless of which imperial camp it is in, but it is also something that the people of Syria and the rest of the Arab world have been fighting and dying for ever since 2011. Under the slogan, if I am pronouncing it correctly, Ash Shab Yorid Iskat An-Nizam. The people demand the downfall of the regime. That was the slogan which was taken up by the Arab masses in 2011, and it's still the slogan which is animating the struggles which are continuing today in Syria and elsewhere around the Arab world. The people demand the downfall of the regime, meaning regimes which were the allies and clients of U.S. imperialism, such as the regimes in Egypt and Tunisia and Yemen and Jordan and Bahrain, and also the regimes which made a pretense, I would say, of opposing U.S. imperialism, such as Muammar Gaddafi in Libya and Bashar Assad in Syria. Because all of these regimes were equally dictatorships, and the Arab Revolution, which swept like a wave from country to country across the Arab world in 2011, and really is still going on today, opposed dictatorship because it was dictatorship. Not because it was a dictatorship backed up by one world power or another. And making it all about the United States is perversely a form of nationalism, a form of patriotism. It's completely U.S.-centric. You are still placing the U.S. in the middle of the moral universe. Whether you view it as uniquely good, like the neocons, or you view it as uniquely evil. You are still placing the U.S. in the center of the moral universe. It's equally U.S.-centric. It's equally an imperial point of view. I call it imperial narcissism. Now, I am a revolutionary, or let's say that I aspire to be a revolutionary, because certainly I do not want to claim for myself anything remotely approaching the same degree of badassery as the people who have really put their asses on the line for revolution in Syria and the Arab world. So I'll be a little bit more modest and say that I aspire to be a revolutionary. And revolutionaries support revolutions. If you do not support revolution, you are a counter-revolutionary and a reactionary So I find it extremely ironic that Max Blumenthal accuses me and my friends of being neoconservatives and centrists. I would argue, as long as we are so interested in name-calling Mr. Blumenthal, that you 
are the counter-revolutionary and reactionary. Now, just last week, the group I'm involved with, Serious Solidarity in New York City, was up at a place called the People's Forum here in New York City, where Max Blumenthal was doing a book promotion gig. I was on leafleting duty. And what was really depressing is that when I would approach people on their way in or out and say, please take our dissenting statement, many refused to take it as if they feared being contaminated by unapproved ideas. And some added a comment baiting me as, quote, pro-war for opposing the bombing of Syria. Somehow this makes me pro-war in their view or, quote, State Department, unquote. And more sadly still, two real-life friends of mine, and if you're listening to this podcast, you'll know who you are, guys, were among those in attendance and were also very reluctant to take our leaflet. So once again, you know, it's a really sad state of affairs that here in a, you know, a so-called progressive venue like the People's Forum, people who are actually supporting the Syrian revolution had to picket outside and were met with such a hostile reaction. Further evidence that the basic consensus is what passes for the left in this country is now pro-fascist. All right, now let's talk about some of the minority or dissident currents in the contemporary American left as regards the question of Syria. Well, a lot of my fellow anarchists have become partisans of the, um, the Rojava Kurds. The Kurdish revolutionary movement in Syria's north, which has established its own autonomous zone and is explicitly influenced by anarchism, particularly by the ideas of Murray Bookchin, the American eco-anarchist thinker who died a few years back. And the Rojava Kurds have put in place anarchistic experiments in direct self-government by um, local popular assemblies and demonstrated genuine heroism in their battle against ISIS to free their territory from the Islamic State, which was bent on exterminating them. But once again, many of um, the anarchists, the American anarchists who are who are rallying around the Rojava Kurds, don't want to look at their own contradictions. For starters, just to state the most obvious, <laughs> the Rojava Kurds do not fly the black flag of anarchism. They have their own flag, the, the flag of, the, um, of Rojava, of the Kurdish Autonomous Zone in northern Syria, and particularly the flag of the YPG, their militia, the Popular Protection Units, which is a red star in a yellow field. But far more seriously, they don't want to look at the fact that the Rojava Kurds, and particularly the YPG militia, have been groomed as proxies by U.S. imperialism in its campaign against ISIS. And it's one of the most absurd ironies on the world stage today that, you know, the ultra-reactionary and, in fact, fascistic government of um, Donald Trump here in the United States is backing a uh, radical left Kurdish movement in northern Syria, which is um, influenced by anarchism. But it happens to be the case. And in the campaign, which was victorious last year, to um, take the city of Raqqa, which was the de facto ISIS capital in Syria, the Rojava Kurds were the force on the ground, fighting alongside embedded U.S. Green Berets. And during this campaign, the city of Raqqa was virtually destroyed by U.S. airstrikes. So the Rojava Kurds are complicit, at least, with war crimes. Now, 
It's easy for me to judge from the safety of New York City, and I absolutely acknowledge this. The Rojava Kurds had to make some very, very difficult choices. They were faced with an enemy that was bent on exterminating them, ISIS. And that is the inescapable context for the fact that they were drawn into an alliance with U.S. imperialism and became complicit with war crimes. And I do not dismiss that. I'm not completely dismissing them as a movement. But nonetheless, it's a reality that needs to be grappled with, not one which we can avert our eyes from and just ignore. So that's my critique of my anarchist comrades who are um, (coughs) rallying around Rojava, as I also am to an extent, but I would say with a more um, (coughs) critical and nuanced point of view. And then finally, we have the, um, the smallest minority of the various dissident factions within the contemporary left, which is those of us who actually support the Syrian revolution. Not just the Rojava revolution, but the Syrian revolution. The secular, pro-democratic, civil resistance movement that continues to exist in Syria even now, among the Arab majority of the country. Also, I will point out, influenced by anarchism, little known fact, but also has put in place its own model of council-based democracy. And some of its early theorists back in 2011, such as Omar Aziz, were explicitly left-wing anarchists. And the ignorance and the willful denial about the fact that this movement even exists is one of the greatest shames among the many shames of the contemporary American left. Okay, now before I wrap it up here, I also have to acknowledge, of course, that this position, which is my position, of support for the general Syrian revolution is also subject to its intellectual abuses, such as downplaying or denial of the actual jihadist element among the Syrian armed rebels, and the demonizing of the Rojava Kurds as separatists who want to break up Syria, which they are not. They have been quite explicit that they want local rule and autonomy within Syria. They do not want a separate state. So I am also critical of my own tendency and recognize the propaganda abuses to which my own tendency is subject. But all in all, This position, the revolutionary and unequivocally anti-regime position, is the one that needs most urgently to be advanced in the current atmosphere. That is the point that most urgently needs to be made. And that is why on May Day, I am going to be marching under the Free Syrian flag. Just as at various times in New York City, I have marched under the Mexican flag, under the Tibetan flag, and under the Palestinian flag. Let me return to the words of George Orwell and his 1945 essay, Notes on Nationalism, where he kind of grapples with, uh, you know, what do we do about this whole phenomenon of nationalism and the dogmatism and the intellectual blindness that seemingly inevitably accompanies it? Quote, It can be argued that no unbiased outlook is possible, that all creeds and causes involve the same lies, follies, and barbarities. 
and this is often advanced as a reason for keeping out of politics altogether. I do not accept this argument, if only because in the modern world, no one, describable as an intellectual, can keep out of politics in the sense of not caring about them. I think one must engage in politics, using the word in a wide sense, and that one must have preferences. That is, one must recognize that some causes are objectively better than others. As for the nationalistic loves and hatreds that I have spoken of, they are part of the makeup of most of us, whether we like it or not. Whether it is possible to get rid of them, I do not know. But I do believe that it is possible to struggle against them, and that this is essentially a moral effort. It is a question, first of all, of discovering what one really is, and what one's own feelings really are, and then of making allowance for the inevitable bias. You cannot get rid of those feelings simply by taking thought, but you can at least recognize that you have them and prevent them from contaminating your mental processes. The emotional urges, which are inescapable and are perhaps even necessary to political action, should be able to exist side by side with an acceptance of reality. But this, I repeat, needs a moral effort. End quote. So, (laughs) with the dogmatism even of my own dissenting minority position (laughs) acknowledged as something that needs to be struggled against, I um, invite anybody who shares my perspective to join the Free Syria Contingent at the May Day March here in New York City. Coming up this Wednesday, May 1st, we're going to be meeting two blocks away from Columbus Circle, where the march is going to be gathering. We're going to be meeting at the south end of Central Park, near the statues of um, the South American liberators, Simon Bolivar and Jose Marti, exactly where um, 6th Avenue runs into the park. We're going to be meeting there at um, 5 p.m., and then we're going to be um, at 5.30, we're going to be marching over to Columbus Circle and joining the main march with our Free Syria flag. So um, I hope to see some of you there. And even if you think that I'm totally full of beans, which I'm sure many of you do, please be in touch. You can check out um, our website at countervortex.org. And once again, every allegation which I have made over the course of this rant is amply documented. Countervortex.org. Hope to see some of you on May Day. Rant on you next time. Join the resistance. Join the Countervortex. Over and out. Easter morn to a city fair rode I. Their armored lines of marching men in squadrons passed me by. No fife did hum, no battle drum did sound its loud tattoo. But the Angelus bells, oh, the liffy swells, rang out in the foggy dew. Right proudly high in Dublin town, they hung out the flag of war. It was better to die 
Neath an Irish sky Then it's Sula or Sudelbar And through the plains of royal Meath Strong men came hurrying through As Britannia's Huns With their long-range guns Sailed in through the foggy dew was England bade our wild geese go that small nations might be free and their lonely graves are by Sulva's waves or the fringe of the great North Sea well had they died by Pierce's side or fought with then their names we would keep Where the Fenians sleep Neath the shroud of the foggy dew Well, the bravest fell And the requiem bell Rang mournfully and clear For those who died that Easter tide in the springtime of the year. And the world did gaze in deep amaze at those fearless men, but few, who bore the fight that freedom's light might shine through the foggy dew. the glen I rode again and my heart with grief was sore for I parted then with valiant men who I never shall see no more but to and fro in my dreams I go and I kneel and pray for you for tyranny fled oh glorious dead when you fell in the foggy 